You are listening to the Mead Musings Podcast, the platform we talk about disabilities, critical illnesses and mental health. This podcast is hosted by a resilient critical illness survivor. Sit back and listen to truly inspiring men and women share their journey, struggles, pains, and strategies for excelling in life despite debilitating circumstances. My guest today is Amy Williams. She is based in England. And I'll just say welcome to the Mid Musings podcast, Amy. Can you please tell us more about what you do? Um, originally, my background is I used to be a primary school teacher, totally different. And then I retrained as a holistic therapist when I had my own children and I became a reflexologist. As a reflexologist, I began to specialize in menstrual and reproductive health. And I took a lot of qualifications and training and became a member of the Association of Reproductive Reflexologists, which has a very integrated approach, working with medicine as much as the holistic model. And then I've been planning on doing this for quite a long time. But you know, when you always have these ideas and plans and you think, oh, well, you know, that's something for next year or the year after. I'm just going to do this one other qualification. And you put things off because you want to be the best you can be. And then lockdown happened and I just went for it. And I just basically put everything into place. I already had, did some more qualifications, um, did some more training in that time. And now this is me. So you've only only been doing it since uh, the lockdown started? Effectively, although really I've been doing it for a couple of years now because I've been doing it through my clinical reflexology work. And basically what I've done with this is I've pulled out everything that I do and just remodeled it away from that holistic model although I offer that still completely as an option so that it can be used by anyone and everyone no matter where they are because with reflexology it was great but people have to come here and I have to be able to interact and touch them um whereas um, I, I like to work with people in the UK because I know the systems and I know the the laws and things the rules and the regulations yeah exactly but I can work with anyone. You're in Manchester. I'm in Lincolnshire. I could work with you just as easily as I could work with someone down the road because all of the knowledge that I have about all the nice guidelines from the NHS, all of the different systems in place within assisted reproductive techniques, all of the supplement advice, the diet lifestyle stuff, all of this is completely nothing to do with where someone lives and I offer services as well such as post or semen analysis service and DNA fragmentation referral and you know this can be done from anywhere so kind of the way things are going isn't it that's great you you were actually a teacher before you started this what got you interested in this field well, originally I was interested to get involved with a holistic therapy because I wanted to help people, just generally, anyone and everyone. And then I was getting people through the door, women through the door, I should say, who were finding that they were hitting their heads against brick walls. They were coming to dead ends. They were going for support from the medical system and very much having a limited response. You know, some people were getting good responses from their GP, from being referred to gynecologists, etc. But others weren't. And it was very much like some got good care and some didn't. And there's a real mismatch of information that was coming through and it started getting me a bit frustrated I'll be honest and my, my primary interest for me personally I love menstrual health because I think it's one of those things that's universally applied to all women and anyone else who bleeds of course and so I was 
interested in it from that point of view at first, and I got really engaged and really involved with endometriosis. I had a, quite a few clients come with endometriosis, and I don't know if you know much about treatment protocols or the journey that women go through to even get diagnosis for endometriosis, but the average is something like eight years. And then for treatment, there is no cure, and women are offered a huge range of very harsh drug protocols or even putting them into early menopause at young age and then ablation or, or um, excision surgeries often are done by people who aren't specialized. So this again, I got frustrated and I got frustrated on the behalf of those people. And but at that point, I didn't really know that much. So I thought, right, I need to learn more. I need to learn more about what's going on here. And I just undertook a journey for myself of self-discovery about this side of medicine. And the more I learned, the more I learned. It's one of those things that you think you know something and then you learn something else. And then it opens up a whole other kettle of fish of stuff to learn. And I just went on this learning journey to understand about menstrual health and then to understand about reproductive health. And within that, to then explore into male factor issues of reproductive as well and it's just incredible I love it I just love it (laughs) it's funny you talk about endometriosis and fertility and the journey it takes for women to be diagnosed I had endometriosis and uh, fibroids yeah I had 16 fibroids taken out of me tiny little Mm -hmm. me (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, fibroids are very common in, yeah, with an African background, very common. But that said, I mean, a lot of women have fibroids and a lot of women won't know they've got fibroids because they've never had it investigated. Uh, Fibroids are a huge factor for menstrual health. It's a huge factor for fertility. You can get pregnant, completely can get pregnant with fibroids, but it depends where they are and what sort they are. It's all very complicated. But lifestyle and dietary factors come into being able to manage this, um, which is something that you just often don't get offered as an option within the health system. The health system tends to be about trying to manage a condition through one kind of called false hormones, like so you're taking the pill or going on the coil, or through surgery. Um, it doesn't tend to try to look at how you can manage it yourself within your home, within your life, within the food that you eat, um, the way that you live your life. And I think that we need both approaches. I think we need a medical or surgical approach where appropriate. And I think we need to have dietary and lifestyle factors to be looked at first, you know, and, and it needs to be core at what we're doing, because ultimately that will lead to people not having to have this repeat situation. You know, you have a condition such as the fibroids and then you go and have surgery and they grow back. Well, they grow back because, yes, a genetic factor is there, but you can manage a genetic factor as at least within certain boundaries through your health and diet and lifestyle factors. So I think the two together is so important and that's what's missing. So how does menstrual wellness, how does that work in improving reproductive health and fertility? So fertility is a two-person job, (laughs) Um, you know, and it's 50-50. You know, historically, women have always been blamed for infertility, haven't they? Exactly. It's 50-50. Both parties are part of the the solution as much as the problem. So if we're talking about menstrual health, 
the woman's side of this factor is obviously very important. You can't get pregnant if you don't ovulate. You can't get pregnant if your tubes are blocked. You can't get pregnant if there are other structural issues in the way with you being able to implant or conceive. But also let's not forget the men, hey? Because <laughs> the issue too. So it's both. It's definitely both. So for couples trying to conceive, what services do you have in place? So if it's clear that there are tests needed, then I will ask people to go and get them, either from the NHS, it, well, the NHS, should I say, if that's appropriate. So the NHS doesn't test for everything. So for example, I live in Lincolnshire. Lincolnshire's semen analysis is very good as a standard semen analysis. But if you live in another county, it could be diabolical. Like here, they test for quite a few parameters. If you live in another county, they might only test for motility and sperm count. Basically, have you got any and do they move? But they won't look at what they look like. They won't look at the pH. They won't look at what's called round cell count. So it does depend on where you live. And also at the moment, it depends on what you can access. Because of COVID, a lot of the laboratories are backed up and you cannot get a test for love nor money. So I also offer people options that they can choose to go into in the private sector. So maybe that they get referred to an andrologist for a semen analysis or a more detailed semen analysis. Maybe they get referred to to have what not even referral. You can just do this yourself online to have the standard blood tests done, but independently. And it doesn't cost a lot. It's it's a couple of hundred quid at the most. Um, So I would perhaps do that to find out more information just to get a baseline. With a woman, I would teach her how to do basal body temperature charting to check cycle is correct. So we want to be sure that someone is ovulating. And you can't tell that from ovulation predictor kits. People think you can, you can't. They're called predictor kits for a reason because it's predicting, not confirming. And we would check that their what's called the luteal phase is stable. That's the bit between your ovulation and your next bleed, because that needs to be at least 11 days. And if it's not, you just can't conceive. So we'd start looking at those sorts of things just to get an idea what's going on. And then if there's any red flags, then obviously a red flag, that's so helpful because we can start addressing that. So again, it might be that someone needs to go back to their GP, having found more information out and asked to be referred for a specific service. But some services aren't within the NHS. So for example, there are quite a lot of urology services for structural issues within a man, such as a varicocele, for example, which is like having a varicose vein in the testes. That isn't likely to be supported by the NHS particularly, and you might need to go for private services to support that looking at DNA fragmentation of men's sperm, which is looking at the quality of the DNA within a sperm, is really, really useful to understand whether the factors are to do with him or to do with her. So you know where you're looking. Again, something you can't get done under the NHS. So it's something I can directly refer to, to refer for. And then we talked before about, you know, diet, lifestyle and supplements, all of those sorts of things. So I can just I can give people a list of the supplements they need, what quantities they need for specific situations. I can advise them on their lifestyle and what they need to do there. To Not to necessarily say this is going to be the one thing that's going to make all the difference, but it may well be part of that puzzle, you know. One of the key factors that might just make a difference, and that's, that's the important thing. I never, ever say to someone, I can guarantee a baby for you, because actually... 
a fertility clinic can't do that either. So what we're trying to do is just improve your chances. And then if someone is going through assisted fertility, so maybe they're going for IVF, maybe they're going for an IEY, maybe they're having some sort of medicalized treatment such as Clomid, then I'm able to support them too with their decisions that they're going to be making. Because as I said, if they're in the private sector having fertility treatments, the clinics will only tell them the services that they offer. They are not impartial. They are a business trying to get a profit. And also they're not in the market for a quick fix because let's face it, cynically, maybe if they have one cycle with you, they get 5,000 pounds. If they have three cycles with you, they get 10, 12, 15,000 pounds. So it's in their interest to perhaps not get the best result the first time. And so I can help you with supporting your process, supporting what's going on with the decisions you might have to make for add-ons, looking around for the best doctors, the best care. And for some women, some women go, uh, or couples should I say, go to their local nearest clinic because it's geographically makes sense for them. But that might not be the best clinic for their situation. So maybe they have something going on that, like, for example, women might have a low ovarian reserve, and maybe their local clinic isn't that great at women with low ovarian reserves. Maybe they'd be better off being referred somewhere else. So I can help them in that way too. So I can advise and support them. So you can basically signpost couples to whatever, whatever service suits them. And you can offer support through counseling, mentoring, and uh, other options. It's multifaceted, yeah. And it depends on them as a couple and what they need. And it's not one size fits all, that's for sure. Definitely. But well, what I don't do is I don't diagnose. Oh, yeah, <laughs> of course, because they're not even. That's not my remit, but I will help with the investigation. Yeah, because I, I watched a documentary. I don't know if you watched it. It was called Miscarriage, Our Story. Yeah, I did ah. watch one one part of it. There was this part of the story with um, someone I know in it called um, Jessica Hepburn. Yeah. I don't know if you saw her story. Um, Jessica is well-known in fertility world. She she runs Fertility Fest. She's always on Fertility Podcast. Yeah. And she's written two books. She's writing her third. And yeah, I actually spoke to her the week before that was that was released about Is it? Yeah. oh wow yeah you know when i watched that i was in tears because you I know bet. when people are going through fertility and conception it's always so difficult it sometimes breaks down marriages because people just yes. can't come together to to find the solution to their problems when couples are trying to conceive and a miscarriage happens, people automatically blame the woman. And it is emotionally draining, the whole process of miscarriage and going through the grief, if not properly handled, just causes tension, which breaks down the marriage or breaks down the relationship. They want, they want to have children, but they always blame the woman when these things happen and it's not always a woman's fault well it sometimes is her her body's fault but it's never her fault it's never anyone's fault but this becomes a blame game doesn't it yeah. and this is the thing it's circumstance not design no one's chosen this it's no one's fault no one's done something on purpose to affect it it is what it is but as i said it's 50 50 and between 20 to 30 percent of situations are only the man 
but it is 50-50. Usually there's, there's combined factors. But actually, as much as, yes, I, I can understand that culturally in, in Nigeria, for example, where you're from, that there could well be this as a big issue. Even in the medicalized systems, the woman is investigated more, the woman is looked at more, the woman is focused on more. If a man has had the most basic rudimentary semen analysis, they basically count them and see if they're moving, and that is fine. Most of the time, they will be then ignored in the whole process. And then if they don't get pregnant, they will say, oh, it's idiopathic. No one knows why they didn't get pregnant. I'm not saying this is true of all clinics. I'm not saying this is true of all doctors, but it happens a lot. And what they need to do is they need to improve the investigations that are done on men because basically they're they're back in the 70s or the 80s. You know, they are old-fashioned, out-of-date. Male uh, fertility has declined since 1980 by 57% globally. It is massive. And that needs to be looked at. And um, most of the time with men, what's good is a lot of the things can be done and dealt with easily. So they can be dealt with by antibiotics. They can be dealt with by changes to their lifestyle and diet. You know, how amazing is that? But women, most of our factors need surgery. Oh, no, need- it's always so oh, difficult for women. <laughs> really, huge difference. So why are they not? I don't get my head around it at all because the NHS should be looking to save money. But in the private sector, I get it. It's not in their interests. Why would they want to do a quick fix when they could go down a route that's going to cost thousands? Totally get that. Not that I'm saying it's morally right, but I understand why they're doing it from their point of view. But there are so many factors for infertility. I mean, oh my goodness, irregular ovulation, poor semen quality, blocked tubes, polyps, fibroids, uterine disorders, your age your weight, STIs, smoking, alcohol, environmental factors, stress, so many things that they all need investigating. Oh, okay. So just mention some of these factors that could lead to infertility. Are there more that could affect reproductive health? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, really, you know, like I said, it's individualized. So it could be something really simple, like a lot of men's uh, urinary infections symptomatic so a man may well have an infection without knowing it now you could end up going down the whole IVF route spending thousands of pounds trying to get a baby and all he needs is some antibiotic so that could be just a very simple factor but it could be really complicated it could be that perhaps a woman has PCOS so she might not be ovulating or at least irregularly and then she also perhaps has high androgens which are male hormones which is common with PCOS which is going to stop having good hormone levels. And then topped with that is if you have PCOS, you're more likely to have insulin resistance and be overweight. So if you're more overweight, you're less likely to get pregnant and you're more likely to have a miscarriage. And if you have insulin resistance, it causes an issue with implantation and you're more likely to have a miscarriage. So, you know, looking at that, what one condition has so many factors to it that have so many patients on that woman and her partner's journey. Now, what if she had the PCOS that was already diagnosed and he had a semen analysis that was really basic that said he had sperm and it was moving. And so what's the doctor's going to do? They're going to say it's because of the PCOS. What if he also had a urinary infection that was leading to high round cell counts, but they didn't know that because they didn't look at it properly, which they don't. 
they often don't look around cell counts. Not many counties do usually have to go privately to get that. So he's going through that whole thing. She's going through a whole thing. She's thinking it's her. He's blaming her. She's taking drugs, she's taking Clomid or something to try and ovulate. And then actually, at the end of the day, was never going to work because they never fixed him. So this is the fact, the issue. You have to look at all the factors, all the issues. Thank you. Yeah. Do you think that the generation that we were born also influenced our ability to conceive or decision to have children? Because right now I know some men I know are deciding not to even have children. And some women are also taking that decision not to have children. But back in the days of our parents, it wasn't something they would think of. They were just like, yes, we want to have children. That's the natural course of things when people get married. They just, next thing is to have children. But these days, why why are people deciding not to have children? I mean, not having children is obviously a big factor of infertility because you're never going to have a baby if you don't want one. Yeah. It's accidental. Actually, yeah, it's it's an issue because uh, in our society nowadays, if you are going to have a baby, you put it off. You know, you wait, you say, I'm going to get financially stable. I'm going to do my career first. And we see women starting to try to conceive late 30s, even 40s, which was never happened. You know, it didn't happen before. My mum had me when she was 36 and she was the only older mum on the playground. Everyone oh. else's mums were at least 10 years younger than her, if not more. Oh, wow. <laughs> Your mum must have been exceptional. She took the decision to have a child. It wasn't really quite a decision. She didn't meet my dad, so she was old. (laughs) But that was abnormal then. Whereas now, if you have a child in your early 20s, that's abnormal. You're having children in your 30s, even into your 40s, that is normal. But what happens is, of course, our bodies are designed to have our babies younger. So we end up struggling to conceive and wondering why because this culture society says you can have it all you can have whatever you want as long as you put your mind to it but your body doesn't work like that of course women are racing against time racing against their body clock because their ovarian reserves decline with age women have a limited number of eggs it's called an ovarian reserve. And as you get older, that drops off the cliff. So as you reach 30, that just starts declining at an accelerated rate. By the time you're in your 40s, your chance of getting pregnant naturally is something like 5%. And women are more and more and more trying to get pregnant in their late 30s and 40s. So that is a huge factor. Mm-hmm. But let's forget the men. Men have always been told they don't have a biological clock. They've always been told, oh, um, you know, let's look at uh, celebrities such as Charlie Chaplin had a baby in his 90s. Or um, what's his name from the Rolling Stones? He had one recently in his 70s. Meek Jagger. They are the exception to the rule. Men have a biological clock. Men's sperm reaches its peak in their 20s and by the time they're 40 it's really poor quality and it's up to really not much good your chance of having a miscarriage your chance of not getting pregnant at all your chance of having chromosomal issues such as down syndrome or autism etc so much more significantly high with a man over the age of 40 
So this is a huge issue. Sperm quality does decrease over a certain age. And although I said over 40, really we're talking over 30, it's going to start diminishing. That's just age. Forget the fact that we have horrendous diets in this modern age, full of chemicals, full of all the pesticides and herbicides that have been sprayed on all the food. The, the food now has a much lower nutritional content than it did 20 or 30 years ago. People overeat junk. They eat loads of sugar. They eat loads of uh, saturated fats. It's convenient. And what's that lead to? It leads to much poorer nutrition. So you need good nutrition to get pregnant. You need good nutrition for the sperm and the egg. You need to have really good omega oils. You need to have zinc. You need to have uh, selenium. You need to have magnesium. You need to have all of the good stuff going on in your good, rich, quality diet that's just not out there. You can't get that through McDonald's. Yeah. Well, you can't. You can't no, get it. Or- of course, yeah. And you, you need to be of a good body mass. You know, you can't get pregnant if you're too skinny because you're not going to ovulate. But also you can't expect to have good fertility outcomes if you are over a certain BMI. And over 30, they won't even do IVF on you because your chance of getting pregnant and maintaining that pregnancy diminish rapidly. And then it comes back to sperm quality again, because the sperm quality, the DNA of the sperm inside the head of that sperm, it might look perfect. You might have a semen analysis that says your sperm is top notch. And inside that sperm is horrendous DNA that's all messed up because your diet has affected it so much. And you can't see that on a semen analysis. You need to do what's called DNA fragmentation analysis, which you definitely have to pay for. And you won't know what's going on with that. But I can tell you, your lifestyle, alcohol, cigarettes, drugs, solvents that are in your environment, xenestrogens, which are like from plastics, um, drinking water that has had um, women's contraceptive pills flushing into it, all of that affects sperm and it affects the quality of the sperm and if you have got dna that is not up to scratch in your sperm head then you cannot make a viable embryo just not possible so yeah i mean all of that huge factors oh even heat for men of course the testes are out of the body for a reason to keep it a little bit cooler and if you're in really hot environments, if you're doing loads of exercise, such as you know marathon running or cycling, if you're going to the hot tub or the sauna, heated car seats, all sorts of things can have an impact on the DNA of your sperm. You basically cook them. So yes, yeah, so many factors. Okay, so now you've mentioned sperm DNA. You've mentioned it about a few times. Can yeah. you explain what that is and how it affects reproduction? For men. Yes. So um, obviously, you know, you've got two people and they're going to make a baby. So you need 50% of the DNA comes from the mom, 50% comes from the dad, and they join together to make the embryo. And the egg is able to actually fix issues with the DNA. So not everything, if it's all a disaster, they it can't fix everything. But if there are some damaged parts of the DNA, it can actually fix it. It's quite clever. Women, are, you know, give us some credit. The sperm can't do that. Sperm cannot fix itself. So if sperm have issues in its DNA, it can't fix it. Now, if there is low damage to the DNA in a sperm, and it then, you know, fertilizes the egg, the egg can fix some of the damaged sperm's DNA, because the egg is so clever. 
But if there is medium to high damage of the DNA, then it can't fix it. So then what you've got is all that information to build a person coming from the woman, coming from the man, and some of it is damaged. And if that information is damaged, that code isn't going to be read correctly. It may mean that although those that sperm has fertilized the egg, that it just doesn't grow. Nothing happens and you never even knew it was fertilized. It might be that it gets to the point of a blastocyst stage where you've got all these multiple cells and it's ready to implant, but actually it doesn't really progress from there or maybe it progresses for a few weeks and it just stops growing. It's one of the main causes of multiple miscarriage and it's one of the main causes of secondary infertility and it's one of the main causes of idiopathic infertility which is when they just don't have an explanation and it's such a huge factor but many of the reasons why you would have issues with the DNA are lifestyle some of them aren't some of them might be structural so I mentioned before about varicose seals which are varicose veins in the they're like a varicose vein in the testes that can cause DNA issues because it causes more heat in that space but generally they're going to be caused by lifestyle factors. And so it's so important when a couple trying to conceive that we don't just think of it as the woman is trying to get pregnant. The couple is trying to get pregnant and he needs to take as much ownership of that as her. So while she's taking her supplements and watching what she eats and cutting out the alcohol and stop smoking, et cetera, et cetera, he needs to do the same. And it takes three months for sperm to mature. So you'll start growing the sperm or creating the sperm three months before you ejaculate it. And in those three months, if you think of it like, you know, like kind of a factory where they go along, there's a factory line building a car and they add one bit and then they add another bit and they add yeah. another bit. Yes. It's like creating sperm. So you create a bit, it adds another bit on. And through those three months, it's built. So if through those three months, you had a night out and you got absolutely trashed because you drank your body weight and alcohol, <laughs> that is going to have an impact on your sperm. Even if it was like, say in February and you didn't ejaculate till Easter, that would have had an impact. If you are eating junk food that whole time, that's going to have an impact because it's going to be the building blocks that are needed to create that sperm won't be there. You won't have the right omega oils. You won't have the right proteins and stuff to create the actual sperm properly. If you are going to be sitting in a sauna, it's going to have an impact. You're smoking cigarettes. It's one of the biggest causes for male factor issues is smoking and alcohol. So all of this has a factor. And yes, we can all think of people who have got pregnant by accident usually while completely drunk on drugs and really poor diet and all the whole thing. And usually they have about 10 kids and no one knows or understands why. They are, again, exceptions to the rules. They're lucky. They have naturally very fertile bodies, but it's a continuum. So if your body naturally isn't as fertile as it could be, and then you throw in all this other stuff, you're just going to bring down your percentage even further. So it's about optimizing your health, optimizing your chances of getting pregnant. And you can only do that if the man and the woman work together to do that. Thank you for that. In your own opinion, how can reproductive issues impact on mental health? Well, I think you mentioned it before about this sense of like marriages breaking up, 
people being so emotionally invested in this and then the disappointment, the shame, perhaps the blame, can it really impact on your relationship? And if any relationship breaks down, that's, that's going to have a big factor of uh, mental health, even in the UK, which I mean, you know, UK is, is a Western culture. And we would like to think, although I really don't think this is the case, that we are a very balanced society in terms of men and women, uh, an open society. This isn't necessarily the case with things like fertility. Women can feel very much that they're carrying the burden of fertility alone. It's not easy for people to talk outside of the couple about these things. It's very hard for people to reach out to friends and family to, to be able to share their concerns and their journey. Um, they often feel like they're being a burden. They often feel like people don't understand them. They don't understand their situation. It's nothing worse than and sharing your story and then someone else going, oh, I never had those problems. I just got pregnant first time. Or, oh, well, you should do what I did and just take this one thing and then all your problems will be solved. You know, people want someone to hold the space for them. And they don't like to see the disappointment in their family. You know, you go to your mom and you say, I've been trying for two years to get pregnant. And then her disappointment for you, because she's not ashamed of you necessarily. It's just that she would love you to get pregnant. She's sad for you. And to carry someone else's emotions about your own thing is, is a burden and it's hard so there are lots of factors. And, and if you don't manage to get pregnant and you never manage to get pregnant, then coming to terms with never being a parent, if you want to be a parent, is a grief. It's a grief in itself because you grieve all those babies that you always thought you, had, you were going to have and you never had. And, you know, a lot of people who try to get pregnant and, and aren't able to or struggle to also, like you said before about miscarriage, they struggle through often many miscarriages, multiple miscarriages, which again aren't spoken about freely in society. People don't talk about it. People are expected to just kind of act as if it's an everyday thing. You know, it might be that you have a day off work and then, oh, aren't you coming back on Monday? You know, and this person's lost a baby. They've lost their child. And it's not helpful if someone goes, oh, well, most pregnancies are lost before so many weeks or it's just a natural process or anything like that. That doesn't help that person. As soon as they found out they're pregnant, they are in love with that baby. That's their child. They've pictured that child growing up and going down the, walking down the aisle or their graduation day. To lose that child, regardless of which point of gestation that is, that is just still losing your baby, still losing your child. And people even name you know, a baby as soon as it's conceived. So to, to lose a child is massive at any point. And that person can be carrying that grief for the rest of their life. And if you can't talk to someone about it and you have no one who's sympathetic to that, that's just unbearable. Yeah, just just so much of a society thing, not talking about these things. I think it was just uh, some time ago, Meghan Markle was talking about losing a second pregnancy and uh, I was like well um it's awesome she's talking about it but there's so many other people that have miscarriages every day and they just feel so ashamed to talk about it they feel like this is not acceptable they don't even have the space to grieve that loss And once they, because they don't grieve the loss properly, it just carries on. They have this, I mean, it it, it just translates into so many things in their lives. So this is why I like to 
get people talking about these things, things like this. Have a huge impact on emotional health. And I just wanted to know, does your organization offer support for people when they're going through miscarriage? So I'm not a counsellor, I'm not a trained counsellor, so I would have to refer someone for that. And I have links with, well, there are fertility coaches who don't do what I do, they do the mental health side. And I have links within that too. I work with a lady called Jo Sinclair, who's in Wales, and she she is a fertility mindset coach, and she does things like NLP, which helps support someone emotionally. And I also have a fertility counsellor down the road from me who I can refer to as well. If someone is having miscarriages, you have one miscarriage, you can't assume that there's anything actually wrong particularly If you have multiple miscarriages, it's time to start thinking about why that might be. And in NICE guidelines, which is guidelines that the National Health Service follow, um, you wouldn't get referred for that unless you'd have three. Three miscarriages is a lot, isn't it? To to go through before someone's... Even one miscarriage is a lot to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. So I would work with someone who's had miscarriages in the sense of trying to optimise their health both of them before they conceive, giving themselves three good months of really good quality health care for themselves. And then while they're conceiving as well, maintaining that to boost that chance of really good quality DNA, boost the chance your body is at its prime position to really maintain a pregnancy. For women, a large issue can be progesterone levels, for example. So you want to be sure that you're going to keep maintaining that progesterone. And the one of the best ways to do that is through your diet and, and your lifestyle as well. Yeah, I can support someone with miscarriage in a few ways, but unfortunately that you wouldn't get any medical investigations until you've had at least three. And there's no set medical pathway for multiple miscarriage, unfortunately. So although nice protocols say to investigate it after three, what that will involve completely depend on the doctors you see on the day yes that's another thing that maybe i I hope somebody would review someday because three miscarriages is a lot for somebody to deal with so even going through one is a lot it's sometimes people have complete breakdown emotionally mentally even after one miscarriage because you're emotionally invested in that baby it can be a trauma as well. Let's not forget that the woman can lose a lot of blood. She can be in a lot of pain. Sometimes not the whole thing comes out. You have to have um, surgery to remove everything. It's, it's not a pleasant process. And like my sister, she had two miscarriages and one of them, she didn't know she had a miscarriage. She went in for her 12-week scan, expecting to see a healthy baby and, and the baby had died at about eight weeks and it was still there. So she, then she had, you know, that was just horrendous. And she had to go through surgery to have it removed. Massive deal, massive, massive deal. And I think as well, you know, it's worth remembering at the moment with, with lockdowns and COVID, what was happening is women were miscarrying and then they were having to go into hospitals alone with no one to support them. Oh, yes, that's another thing. Imagine somebody going into the hospital thinking, I have a 12-week pregnancy. The partner is sitting in the car waiting for them to come back with some good news. And they don't know what's going on inside. And then they come back out with no baby. The woman is devastated. The man 
does not actually know how to process that information because it was just not there when the the scan or whatever it is that was done to figure out that there was no baby. If if he was emotionally invested in the situation, which most men these days are, that would be horrendous. He'd have no idea what's going on. He's lost his baby as much as she's lost hers. Left with the trauma of that alone, sat in a car in a car park, probably on a rainy day. Um, she's going into the hospital not knowing what's going to happen. No one to hold her hand. No one to comfort her or just to sympathise with her like a partner would. Um, so people have been going through a lot recently, a lot. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for your time today. Right. One last thing is, do, do your rates vary for each consultation? And would you offer my listeners some discounts? If- oh, that's a cheeky ask. <laughs> on um, so yeah, my rates are really variable. It depends what's going on. Because some people have real complicated situations with loads of work and... Um, lots and lots of medical notes to read through and they might need lots and lots of um, support whereas someone else it could be that so for example if it's a menstrual health issue and someone might not have any medical notes for me to look through it's just something that they're at the early stages of looking at then I wouldn't charge much at all for consultation it might just be 50 pounds for the whole thing of the diet lifestyle supplement advice all of that thrown in teach you how to do basal body temperature charting and stuff whereas if a couple were coming and they both had loads of medical notes and they were on a long journey with lots going on then you know it'll be it'll be a higher charge because there's, there's more going on so i do i do offer basically an individualized approach and I always say to people with this, just book one session, we'll see where we go, and then we'll see what's next. Because I don't know, I'm not going to book a whole block of sessions with you, and it might not be appropriate. It might be that you only need the one, and then you can go off and do that by yourself. It might be that you need to come back in three months' time, or come back in six months' time, and then we'll have another session. So it's very interesting. Um, if you are listening to this podcast, and you would like a discount, because <laughs> I think that was popular. I will offer you £10 off. Thank you. <laughs> for giving us a discount. <laughs> Any listener, go. That's on. okay. But you have to say that you, you got it through here because otherwise I won't know. <laughs> Definitely. So you have to say I was listening. Definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Positive. Thank you for listening. Please download and share with your friends and family and on social media platforms. We are available on Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, IAT Radio, Listening Note, Podchaser, GoodPods, Radio Public, Stitcher, Deezer, Pocketcast, Himalaya, and anywhere you listen to your podcast. Please leave a review, comment, or feedback on our social media platforms on YouTube instagram facebook and twitter and also on our website www.podbean forward slash midmusings.com thank you very much